Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 22nd of January 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, economic recovery starts with crushing the banking monopoly. And were you played by QAnon? Elisa, it's the 22nd of January, which means two days ago, date-wise, Joe Biden was sworn in as President of the United States, which means, which we'll address later in the show, a lot of people who were saying, I was up, up to last week, that Trump would still be President because it had some fantastic knowledge, special source of information, trust the plan. People got to acknowledge, acknowledge it was all wrong, right? And what we want to do today is get people focused on reality because by focusing on reality, you can actually change reality. You won't change reality if you focus on fantasy. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a bit more about why they want to keep people, of course, in fantasy land. Um, so first of all today, economic recovery starts with crushing the banking monopoly. So it's very interesting we wanted to point to today um, that not only do we have a campaign here uh, in Australia to turn Australia Post into a postal bank, amid efforts to privatise it and crush it, uh, as with any of our great assets. Uh, but this is something that is being looked at more and more globally, and we want to talk about the particular case in the United States uh, where there's a push there for a postal banking service as well. Uh, because in order to get an economic recovery underway, the banking mafia that we've been discussing over quite a few years now, pushing uh, bail in to steal people's money to prop up the system, all of the QE programs that have um, been, you know, looting the public purse to keep the banks going, things like banning large cash transactions, debanking people. Uh, these things are all part of the overall system which has to be dislodged uh, in order to bring banking elements into play that can create the credit to flow through to the real economy. There's so a private, sorry, Alyssa, there's a private banking monopoly and frankly under its control, and this is pretty much globally, the banking system is failed, it's broken. The problem is the power of this monopoly, they, 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 are, they just get to um, demand policies that, that allow them to do things to keep themselves puttering along, but not, it, it's, it's counter, um, uh, you know, it counteracts the, the, what's good for the real economy, right? It's at the expense of the real economy. And we're not going to have any change here where we can get the financial system to once again serve the real economy and the, and the people of the economy without breaking that monopoly. And that starts with public banks because only governments responding to the wealth, the, the needs of their people can stand up to the power of this banking monopoly. They used to do it and we've got to get them to do it. And, the, and frankly, the green shoots in this area, the potential lies starting with postal banks, and that's why we, we're pushing so hard for this. And uh, the political scandal that has erupted over the, the fact that Christine Holgate, the CEO of Australia Post, was forced to resign, was shamed into resigning essentially by a process that erupted in the parliament that was triggered actually by the Labor Party. Um, it provides us... Uh, ironically, an opportunity to yep. get that issue of a postal bank on the table. So give our viewers the latest in the update on the campaign on the postal Australia Post push. Oh, well, there's, there's a, there's a 
press release people can um, see on our website where we've asked, we're demanding Anthony Albanese retract his dishonest attack on Australia Post and Christine Holgate because he started this. And, and the fact that Labor and Liberal at some level colluded to crucify Christine Holgate, so this is why this, this is what makes this such a useful issue um, because it, it lays bare that kind of corruption. If Christine Holgate, I mean, she made the banks cough up money, which they wouldn't have liked, but then she also looked down the pathway of saying, hey, let's, maybe Australia Post could become a bank. And that would break that monopoly, right? Anyway, for, for those reasons and the fact she made Australia Post successful, which means as, because it's successful, it can't, it's, it's a harder to privatise, she made political enemies, right? And what the problem with the two major parties and the reason we prefer to work with all the minor parties, for, all of them, from the Greens on one side to you know, One Nation on the other side, is because whatever their varying views are, they're not owned by vested interests, whereas the two major parties unfortunately are. Now we can change that, but we're going to change it over issues like this because we make them, we, we, we hold them to account. So what we've, uh, as we announced last week, we've got a three hours campaign. Re release the report that clears Christine Holgate, uh, replace the Australia Post board, who are political hacks and appointees who did nothing um, to, to tell the truth about the situation, and reinstate Christine Holgate. We need people to talk to call the Labor Party leader, Anthony Albanese, and demand he retract his attack on Christine Holgate so that she can get, because he has to acknowledge his role in this. He, he's the one who tried to make out what she did was in the middle of a global pandemic. And Barnaby Joyce did recession. that. So, you know, you've got a precedent there. No, exactly. Barnaby Joyce hopped up in Parliament. We played the clip of, before Christmas and said, I was wrong on Christine Holgate, right? Elbow has to do the same thing. Michelle Rowland is the Labor Party's Shadow Communications Minister. We needed people to call her and demand she join the campaign to get the report that clears Christine Holgate released. But we're also asking people, Elisa, to pay special attention to the National Party. If you're watching this from a rural electorate and your local MPs are national, um, get involved in actually contacting them and demanding they do something. More than any other party, my feedback is the Nationals are the ones who appreciate just how important Australia Post is to their electorates, right? Because those, those licensed post offices are the lifeblood of their communities because when the, too, in too many communities, the banks have shut down, right? And it's only those banking services provided by the licensed post offices. And the Nationals understand how important these local post offices, licensed post offices are to their electorates and to their communities. So they need to stand up to Scott Morrison and demand he reinstate Christine Holgate because sacking her has put the whole viability of Australia Post at risk, right? That's, this is the problem here. So what we're asking people to do is not actually start calling and emailing your National Party and members of Parliament and, and National Party senators, but also join in delegations to go and see them. If you live in their electorate, go and see them and demand they do something about this. They might initially try and tow the party line, but they know you're actually going to be right that something needs to be done. Because like we said before Christmas, Barnaby Joyce um, admitted he was wrong. We can actually apply pressure here and get this reversed. And if we can get Christine reinstated, we're putting up a bill for an Australia Post bank, which, which will be an important debate next year, right? And we can actually win this one like we win, yeah. we've won other things. Now, there's a lot of traction on this issue, which you're seeing the same thing raising... Um, the spectre of postal banking in the United States, which is threatening the banks and has got them really worried there as well. Um, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and Bernie Sanders uh, have put up the Postal Banking Act of 2020, and this is happening there also uh, amid a campaign to privatise the postal service. 
Gillibrand stated outright when she um, put this forward that the U US Postal Service is the only institution that serves every community in the country and that would allow postal and banking services for the nearly 10 million American households who lack access to basic financial services. So this is a huge issue uh, and we're going to run a clip of her speaking about this issue. Uh, this was a webcast that she and Bernie Sanders participated in. Sanders and I are here to talk about a new version of the Postal Banking Act, which we introduced to help solve two major problems at once. First, it will shore up the post office. It will create much needed sustainable source of funding. And second, it will bring banking to the one in four Americans who are currently unbanked or underbanked, either because they don't have the funds to access banking or because their community doesn't have a bank at all. Right now, those families are forced to spend $100 billion a year on predatory products like payday lenders, check cashing, and even overdraft fees all because they cannot afford to access the financial system that many of us take for granted. Sad fact is, it's expensive to be poor in America. <laughs> we can change that with our new Postal Banking Act. The Post, Post Service has 30,000 locations all across the country. In every community, from rural towns to big cities to small cities to suburbs. And each of these locations can serve as a public, nonprofit bank bringing low-cost banking services to every community in the country, including those in the underserved areas. The Postal Banking Act would give families access to small-dollar checking and savings accounts, debit cards, low-fee ATMs, online banking services, wire transfers, and most importantly, small-dollar loans so they don't have to become victims of predatory lenders if their car breaks down or they need to buy their kid a new pair of shoes or school supplies. The Postal Banking Act would also ensure that postal banking and the US Postal Service at large would remain a public institution and stop the slow, the slow creep towards privatization. And the best thing about postal banking is that we know it already works. Today, the U.S. Postal Service does over $20 billion a year in money orders, and from 1911 to 1966, it offered many of the products that we are proposing, helping millions of low-income families through the Great Depression and two world wars. Okay, I lost the- Postal banking was America's most successful experiment in financial inclusion. At this moment, when families are facing growing economic uncertainty and a widening wealth gap, it could not be more needed. Now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to discuss this. Welcome back to the Citizens Report, where we're discussing economic recovery starts with crushing the banking monopoly. And a postal bank's a big start to that. Yeah, so the clip we just played before the break, Lisa, of... Senator Gellibrand and Senator Sanders in America talking about their postal bank idea. If you look at that, I mean, it's, they're addressing the same problem we're trying to address here, slightly different predicates, um, 
we, if you watch the whole clip, Senator Sanders then starts talking about how it's it's expensive to be poor in America, um, and and how people need like one of the things they want to do there is come up with a way to be able to make small loans so that average people don't have to go to payday lenders, right, where they charge percentages, interest percentages of hundreds of percent, things like that. So that's a special thing there. In Australia, it's much more just providing services that the that the private banks won't do anymore to these many rural communities, but also low-income um, city communities, right? And that's what, the, that's what the bank can do. It can fill a void, uh, and at first a niche, but it can do actually a lot more. And we want to make ours uh, even more powerful than the US one mm. because it has to be something that the, the, the public can say, hey, this is a genuine alternative to the other banking system, mm. right? Yeah, and in the US, I mean, there's provisions like you have to have certain minimum amounts of money to maintain a bank account yeah. and so forth, which is quite difficult. And so there's been a push on this from various aspects. For example, late last year, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency put up a proposed new regulation uh, called the Fair Access to Financial Services Regulation, which would mandate that every person has to have access to a bank account and regulate the banks in order to do that. And that, that actually flies in the face of the debanking that we've been fighting here in Australia, right? We need the same kind of regulation here. So the banks just can't debank willy-nilly. If we don't have that, the next best or an even better alternative is the postal bank, an Australia Post Bank, because by law it won't be able to discriminate against anybody and you'll, you'll be able to maintain your bank accounts there. That's right. Now, um, of course, the full slate of policies and uh, the directionality of the new Biden administration is absolutely still up in the air and yet to be determined. However, I'll mention a few things that are on the table. I mean, first of all, of course, Biden has put forward his $1.9 trillion stimulus plan, which has a big component um, of infrastructure, particularly things like public health infrastructure. But there are other pieces of legislation which have been up uh, on the table of Congress previously, which may get the traction they need now, um, and many of them are Democratic sponsored, such as the Glass-Steagall uh, re regulation to actually re-regulate the banks and prevent commercial deposit-taking banks from speculating. And Biden himself is someone who had voted to repeal uh, Glass-Steagall, but has, in the meantime, recently done a mere culpa on that, saying I was wrong about that. You also have the um, National Infrastructure Bank Act of 2020, which will be reintroduced. It was in the previous um, parliament and there's been a lot of organising to get this bank to provide $4 trillion of infrastructure spending, creating 25 million plus jobs underway. Um, so particularly within democratic layers, there's a lot of support, but they're recruiting uh, Republican support to co-sponsor that bill uh, right now. And what, one of the things that's interesting actually with this Sanders-Gillibrand bill is that Bernie Sanders is now chair of the Senate Budget Committee. So he's actually in a powerful position to bring these things to, the, to a vote and to debate and so forth. Whatever you think of Sanders, he's 100% genuine against Wall Street. And, um, and that's a... You know, so he, over the last few years, he has, he has earned a position in the party and now he has his chairmanship. Mm. And if he applies the blowtorch to Wall Street... Um, well and good. And he's stated in a recent interview that he will be aggressive in using procedural budget powers where he can get these bills to the point of being voted up uh, and passed, but with his primary concern being the greatest economic distress experienced by working families since the Great Depression, 
uh, in this crisis and the ability to get millions of good paying jobs to rebuild crumbling infrastructure. So he's got that focus which is important. Now the key thing is going to be whether um, people in the Biden administration decide to take on Wall Street because the other the yeah. problem is they can crush all of these agendas. Um, now there's a couple of signs which are interesting. Gary Gensler is, has just been made head of the Securities and Exchange Commission and he has a reputation as a very tough regulator. He led the charge to toughen uh, the Volcker rule which was an attempt to bring back Glass-Steagall light so it doesn't fully prevent banks from speculating but it was a move in that direction. Help, yeah. um, so he was pushing for that. And the Biden financial reform transition team included former IMF chief economist Simon Johnson, who'd called for a breakup of the Wall Street banks, uh, and a number of others who pushed to stop the revolving door between the banks and Treasury and tighten um, those Dodd-Frank rules that included the Volcker rule um, to try to um, keep the banks somewhat in line. So it yet remains to be seen where this will go. But Lisa, one of the reasons we're going to talk next about QAnon is because People need to understand this is actually where the fight's at, right? And this is a fight that you could think started in September 2008 when Wall Street crashed. Obviously, it started before that, but that's when everyone realised, hang on, the system's broken here. And instead of the public outcry being enough to fix it, there was all sorts of machinations, starting with effectively a fraud of a president as Obama, right, promising the world and delivering nothing, just giving Wall Street a, a, a blank check and a pass, and then... That built up so much rage that people were prepared to vote for someone as wild and unpredictable as Donald Trump. And then Donald Trump himself went and appointed Wall Street Goldman Sachs guys to run his agenda, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's all sorts of fantasy stuff that people's head about, oh, trust the plan, there's something going on. No, it's four years later, nothing happened. If America is not going to descend into civil war, as we talked about last week, and, and the rest of the world get worse and worse, we have to address this. And if we take on Wall Street, mm. right, you can. But the public needs to know that what you've just gone through means there's a slight potential in this new administration. And if the public applies its blowtorch to that in a proper, productive way, right, that can shape it. Mm. But if you're off howling at the moon at, you know, unproven things... You're not going to do that and you're going to miss that opportunity. This is an opportunity now to shape this and we have a similar opportunity in Australia to, to shape the, the economic agenda here, right? And that's what we want people to focus on, which is why we'll talk about this yeah. QAnon fantasy so next. We'll break now and be right back to discuss that. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now discussing Were You Played by QAnon? And you can read more about this in an article in this week's Australian Alert Service. For anyone who hasn't already called in to get a complimentary copy, please do so. All the subjects we talk about are backed up with our own research in this publication every week. Now, Lisa, before you go through this, I just want to um, set the scene a little bit because what you're going to go through is important and I don't want to interrupt all the time. The <laughs> um, Here's a fact. Let me just state a fact right out. Joseph Biden is the President of the United States of America. That means QAnon was a lie from the beginning. That's what that means. All right. So if you're still hanging on to the fantasy, for whatever my opinion's worth, you don't, might not like it, that's what that means. So the question is, how did people get this, and, and it really blew up after the election of course, how did people get this fantasy in their head that was so diametrically opposed to reality? And let me restate why it's so important is you can't... There's so much to change out there, but it's in the real world. 
And you've got to focus on it if you're going to make the change in the real world. If you're buying into a fantasy that someone has lulled, lured you into, you're not going to change the real world. You're going to be operating in a fantasy world, mm. right? We need to change the real world. And, we, and, and now that the dust has settled, now you can actually state emphatically this was wrong, this was, mm. the, the predictions were wrong, everything you were told was wrong. We can look into that and say, how did this come about? We're going to touch the sides today, yeah. but we'll do more work in the future because it's important to expose. Mm. So it's a, you know, a type of psyop to keep people distracted from actually you know, potent political interventions, which obviously we are doing in spades. We've seen it in Australia, defeating the cash ban and various other victories that we've been having in recent years. So I want to talk about an article which we covered in this uh, article in the Alert Service by a game, a video game designer who designs alternate reality games and similar types of games by the name of Reid Berkowitz. This was published at medium.com, titled A Game Designer's Analysis of QAnon. And he says outright uh, that when he first started looking at QAnon posts, he recognised the same methodologies they used to build video games in what was being put out by Q. He said it was gaming's evil twin, a game that plays people. And he went on to say that this... You know, Q was not some loner on the internet that started dropping a few posts and suddenly went viral. He said, I've met those people. I've been on those projects. It doesn't happen like this. This is a media campaign. This is a coordinated propaganda campaign. In other words, it's not organic. And Elisa, he made another really important point that when people really want to get, insiders really want to get out information, like uh, Chelsea Manning did, right? Like the guy who released the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg. Mm. They find it, they do a brave act, they dump it all out yeah. there. Not this little trail of breadcrumbs yeah, kind of approach. Yeah, because you want to get the truth out. You want to get the truth out. Exactly, and this... it doesn't have to be cryptic, but what, you know, just state the facts. But what this video game designer, Berkowitz, went through is how the methodology when they're building a video game is um, they needed, people need, that are playing the game need to get this little rush when they put these clues together and discover where they're going next in the game. Um, there's a tendency he described called apophenia, which is described as the tendency to perceive a connection or meaningful pattern between unrelated or random things such as objects or ideas. And people come across this in uh, video games a lot. Um, so this kind of capacity where they want people to follow the trail of breadcrumbs and connect the dots and, and for the mind to make a mental leap to these grand conclusions is very powerful because people think that they've discovered this information for themselves. They've researched it. They've come to their own conclusion. So they latch onto it and they won't let go. Now, this kind of psychological operation... Um, there was a big push for it in the post-World War II period, period within the US military, but it was actually a British operation which had its origins in the Tavistock Institute. And the Tavistock Institute is a psychological clinic that started as a private affair, but during World War II, uh, it was picked up by the government and began to train and select commanders in warfare. And it was based on the thinking of Bertrand Russell, the British uh, philosopher, who in 1951 said that I think the subject which will be of most importance politically, politically, is mass psychology. Its importance has been enormously increased, he said, by the growth of modern methods of propaganda. And it was crucial um, that in, term, in political terms that uh, the 
the establishment were able to shape the thinking of the population to keep them out of what we call real politics as we've just been describing. Now, and Russell, Russell's the guy who said you'll be able to convince people in the future that snow is black. And that's what QAnon effectively did. from the same paper. Now, we're going to say goodbye to Channel 31 viewers, but you can keep watching on YouTube and we'll continue the discussion. Um, now, the Tavistock Institute that adopted this idea um, of psychological warfare, both uh, not, not just on the enemy countries and enemy populations during war, but on your own populations running psychological warfare within domestically, uh, made a shift to the United States in the late 1940s, establishing the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations and began collaborating with a, a series of similar psychological uh, outfits at various US universities such as the Cybernetics Society and the International Network of Social Network Analysis. And a critical part of this is um, shaping the psychology of the population in terms of warfare because at the end of World War II, um, British ambitions to expand colonialism had been constrained by Franklin Roosevelt uh, and various initiatives such as the creation of a new international financial architecture with the Bretton Woods system. So things like uh, colour revolutions and that kind of warfare was going to become a very big factor. But during World War II, one of the things that psychologists had discovered is that um, soldiers wouldn't shoot at opposing soldiers most of the time. There was a very low rate. People just were not psychologically inclined to do that. So to overcome the psychological aversion to killing in warfare, which they dramatically changed by the time of uh, Vietnam, video games were created by, as a project by the US military. And that was uh, adopted with the corporate world to begin to create point and shoot video games which have been described as mass murder simulators by um, one of the figures involved in training US military and police, Lieutenant David, Colonel David Grossman. And with the entry into the digital age, this became a major factor. And in fact, um, in this recent period with various of the um, riots and so forth on the, in the United States, starting with particularly the murder of George Floyd, there's a movement called the Accelerationist Movement which has um, promoted through memes and so forth various forms of violence, but it operates on blurring the boundary between the imaginary and the factual. And of course, with video games, with um, particularly violent movies and post-apocalyptic um, Netflix series and so forth, you see in spades uh, that people are being induced in a certain direction which is uh, allowing them to be uh, constrained in terms of not entering, you know, a, 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 a political fight. And, and we've, we noticed this with the uh, Christchurch massacre and the, the, the perpetrator of that and his manifesto and the people who shared that and his, and his fans online were all of this type of, of mainly younger, younger men who spend their whole day engaged in a fantasy world online. Right, and so they they they're constructing scenarios that are consistent with with the fantasy gaming they do, and and thinking that somehow the real world reflects that. But then, of course, because they believe that they can go out and make the real world look like it reflects that, mm. because they're prepared. They think, yeah, you know, like the QAnon thing. Every it's not like there's not pedophiles in the world. There are in this high are there high level pedophiles? Yeah, let's let's 
let's spend a whole show on Prince Andrew, right? Because he's going to get off. But um, uh, Q said everyone's a pedophile, right? That sort of thing. And so if you believe that, you take your gun and you go and do something about it and you can shape the world and your image in, in, in the small and, and this is what, you know, this is the yeah. kind of mentality that drives these accelerationists. Well, accelerationism is, um, you know, intervening to push extreme action because that'll just accelerate the change that's coming yeah. anyway. And Brenton Tarrant... We're bringing on the big showdown. The um, Christchurch murderer, Brenton Tarrant, in his manifesto, which the language of which is strikingly similar to Tavistock. So you have to wonder, you know, who, who wrote, wrote this? It? Was it really him? Because he doesn't even seem to have that intellectual capacity. But he outlined the drive in his manifesto for a civil war that would, quote, balkanise the USA along political, cultural and, most importantly, racial lines. So the thing is that all of this is about... Um, driving people to extremes, right and left extremes, getting the clash that results and that allowing the pretext for the financial um, powers that be, City of London and Wall Street and their political puppets to actually clamp down with fascist police state laws that will allow them as the financial system goes down to have another mechanism of control. So that's why we have to really blow up this whole psyop and get to the truth of it. Uh, and get people back into real political action that can create real change. No, absolutely. There is a the real world desperately needs the public to be engaged in it, right? Because I'm I'm not attacking the the uh, the morality of the people that got sidetracked into this. It's 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 the it's the mentality. Why you know why did you get sidetracked in this? Why why were you played by something so patently ridiculous? Now, yes. It takes something like Joe Biden to be inaugurated for there to be an absolute, an actual factual line where we can say, look, that was clearly wrong, what you were told there. Though I understand some people are still clinging onto it and claim there's, there's things afoot and other things are going to happen in a few weeks and whatever. It's all rubbish. It's all fantasy. Get it out of your head and let's concentrate on the real world. It took, I, I first went off, uh, realised Q was rubbish when they claimed three years ago that Julian Assange was not in, you know, hold up in London but was in Trump Tower waiting to testify before the grand jury so that Trump could issue the 50,000 indictments to round up the bad guys and all that kind of stuff, right? And that was so clearly false because poor old Assange is rotting there and look what Trump's done for him, all you Q people, mm. nothing, right? And that's, you know, so look, um, don't beat yourself up too much about it. Learn from this. Let's focus on the real world. And we've got to, f and, and the real world starts with the economy. Right, the people who, if we focus on these issues, we can have an impact. Right, we can create change, and there's potential for change all the time. Right, because the public, it's the we are many, they are few thing. We are the many, but we've got to be focused on what's on the reality that 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 of the solutions that are necessary, and that's when that can become overwhelming and force the political change mm. that we need. And history is, you know. History bears that out many, many times. Yep. Right? And that's what we've got to do now. Citizens have to get engaged in policy making, you know, as we're pushing now. Of course, it's hard to put all this in a nutshell, so contact us. We've written this all up in great depth. You can find out more and contact us to get politically involved. So thanks, Robert. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in and see you again next week.